Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. But I'm, I'm really just grateful to, to have you here today to learn more about fiber, I imagine, and also really your journey, I think, toward these realizations and a few contrasting views. I'd really like to explore uh, more of a carnivore-ish approach, ancestral eating, look at how that's different, um, and really just get your get your take on some of these, let's say, controversial questions. But before, before we go there, I'd love to sort of start, you mentioned something in an interview I was listening to, and I thought it was so important. And you said so many have become complacent in the way they're eating. And I really wanted to understand how we can reframe to understand that we deserve health, we deserve to feel good, and to investigate how we're feeling in our diets. I mean, I think so many people are complacent that even starting this discussion to even make changes in our diet is such a huge hurdle for so many. So why do we deserve health and to feel good? Why should we look at this and spend time on this? All right. So, you know, I think the the thing about it from my perspective is that we only live once, right? And so with that in mind, we deserve, we deserve to have great joy in our lives. And I, I think that's something that I wish for everyone, like I, regardless of whether um, you are my best friend, I don't even know you, perhaps we don't even like each other. I still wish that you have joy in your life. And um, that's something that, that uh, once we have that, then most other things in our life seem to just sort of fall into place. And there's value that we get out of the days when we're in that right sort of headspace. And so the, the, the challenge from my perspective is that we have normalized things that are very abnormal. And we have been dragged as a culture that we like, we can't change our entire society, or it's very difficult to do that um, without some sort of like radical thing, re revolution or something like that. We're not going to change our society. And we have been dragged into this life where we are so busy and we're just bouncing from one thing to the next nonstop. And it barely affords us time to recognize the people in our lives that we love or even ourselves. And it also forces us into a pattern of prioritizing convenience. And that can come at a cost in many situations. When we choose convenience, we are effectively choosing a shortcut in the interest of time or in the interest of less effort. And that shortcut, like there's a downside. And so, and the reason that I can relate to this so much is that this actually is the life that I've led for the majority of my life. I mean, first of all, let me just say like, since I've been in my twenties, I've been working mornings, days, nights, and weekends. And it's just, it's been that way. And I'm a hard worker. That's the way that I am. Um, but what that resulted in for me was that sort of bad habits that I had when in from my teenage years or my early twenties, they became increasingly um, galvanized in the way that I led my life as I became more busy. And so graduated medical school, I was 25 years old when I graduated and entered into residency and like basically was working, you know, 15 to 18 hours a day, six days a week. And on my day off, I was so exhausted. I barely was able to rise up to do my own laundry. So in that setting, there was this part of me that's like, okay, like I am not going to cook. I'm sorry. And number two, like I deserve to eat food that I enjoy. And the problem is that in that setting where it's like, I'm not going to cook. So that basically means I'm eating out. And number two, I am prioritizing food that tastes good and is easy. That basically leads to eating fast food. I mean, there is no doubt that fast food, junk food, it tastes great. Like I love the way I feel for about 10 seconds. There's no lying or doubt about that. The problem is that there's a price that I pay for that. Part of that is how I feel hours later where I have a hangover, but also part of that is the price that I pay with my health. And so there I was, you know, 
in my early thirties, this was about 10 years ago and 50 pounds, you know, 20 kilos overweight and high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high anxiety, low energy, extremely low self-esteem. And anyone could look at me from the outside and be like, but doc, your life was going so well. You were accomplishing like you, all your dreams, your professional goals. And, but the problem is like, I didn't feel that way. And the joy that I wish that everyone had in my life, in their life, I did not have in my life. And when I looked in the mirror, I didn't like the man that I saw. And so it required me to change. And this is where I found this message that has it empowered me and inspired me. I started doing things that like, you know, studying nutrition at night, even though I'm working full time, I started doing things that I was just compelled to do. And then I brought it into my clinic, trying to inspire my patients. And they received radical transformations of their own. And this, again, like propelled me to do things that even I didn't really fully feel comfortable with, like starting an Instagram account. Uh, it's not really something that I enjoy doing, to be perfectly honest, but I felt compelled to do it. I felt like there was this story that I needed to put out there. And then that sort of snowballed into writing a book. And now here we are and we're having this conversation. And my life and the, the vision that I had for my life has completely got away from it, from me. Like, I don't know what happened there. But what I do know is that, what I do know is that, like, I believe that we all deserve to have, like, feel good about ourselves and love the person that we see in the mirror and have joy in our lives and have love. And that, frankly, that love has to start with yourself. And so, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I, you know, that I, I struggled in the very beginning to answer this question, because it's like, wow, where do I even go with this? This is so hard. But at the end of the day, like, why, why do we eat? Why do we, this is not just calories in calories out. This is meant to be a source of joy in our life. And we deserve to do it in a way that enriches ourselves. And so that's why I'm here to talk about this. Yeah, I love that. And you wove in your personal story and also I think culturally stress and the fast paced lifestyle and then really boiling down to self-love. And I think that that's so beautiful because external influences are pushing us to go faster, do more. And it's really a conscious decision to say, okay, but I'm going to prioritize sleep. I'm going to prioritize what it is I put in my body. And, I, and I'm going to enjoy also what I'm consuming, not just for some sort of science experiment or, or a very rational, logical reason, but because I actually enjoy eating this way. So I think that's really powerful. And I definitely want to, and for anyone, I, I guess, that doesn't know your work or hasn't checked in, I mean, you've got Fiber Fuel, I see it there I, behind you. I think such a brilliant book highlighting the importance of of fiber oh yeah that looks nice um and I'll, I'll link to some other episodes you've done because i really my intention is to make sure that we can cover new ground and if people are interested they can definitely look into there's so much there's so many interviews that you've done i think that really share the basics and where you're coming from and what is a microbiome and all these kind of very important questions that need to be covered but i want to sort of dive into a comparison between and you're you're vegan or you eat a vegan diet and so I'd love to take a look at this because even in my family my mom has gone vegan and has put rheumatoid arthritis into remission and is, is thriving and loving it and has never really enjoyed meat and so that's her experience I'm her daughter and I feel incredibly good with Yes, plants and, and vegetables to some degree, but I really feel different if I have meat in my diet versus if I don't. So I'd love to sort of look at this idea of epigenetics and genes on and off. And I, I'm definitely not the expert, but I'd love to explore, can it be okay for people to thrive with some meat? What is the, why are people carnivore or carnivore-ish 
you've got Dr. Paul Saladino, the Peterson family, people that are eating just lamb or just beef or beef and some vegetables. And so why can some people thrive on a diet like that or seemingly thrive? Whereas other people like my mom are thriving on a vegan plant-based diet. Yeah, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot for us to talk about here. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, so we, that, there's a lot for me to unpack there. And, you know, let me, let me start um, from this position. There is no one size fits all diet. All right. So, and I think it's very important to be upfront and transparent about that. There are many different paths that can lead to health. And it really depends on what your individual goals are and whether or not the dietary pattern that we're discussing can fulfill those goals. Now, I'm actually the US medical director for a company called Zoe. And Zoe is about personalized nutrition. And the reason that I am involved with this company is because I wholeheartedly believe in the company. Like I'm, I'm certainly am not under any obligation to get involved with any company. And I would not do that unless I really wanted to be a part of it. But the reason that I was attracted to the idea of personalized nutrition is that when we do clinical trials, we're actually quite limited in our ability. Like we, we all love randomized controlled trials. Like that is what, you know, the sort of high, highest quality research has been during the last uh, 50 years. But actually, it's time for us to move beyond clinical trials. Actually, it's time for us to recognize that we can do actually much better. And that's where we are moving with Zoe. So just to kind of unpack and describe what I'm referring to, because I do want to then remind me if I forget to do this, I want to circle back to talking about sort of the, the carnivore diet and people thriving on, you know, sort of like um, diametrically opposed diets and how we uh, rectify that. So, but just to kind of talk about personalization and its role within our um, life. First of all, we each have a completely unique gut microbiome. There is no person on the planet that has the same gut microbiome as you. And that's like, there's 8 billion people. And no two people are the same among them. What are the chances? One in 8 billion. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's powerful. It's um, shapeable. You can transform it, you can change it. It will adapt to your dietary choices. And if you, if you choose a certain dietary pattern, there is a way in which your gut microbiome will adapt to what you're doing. It's not necessarily advantageous for all things in terms of human health, but it can allow you to eat many different forms of diets and have a gut microbiome that is defined by that dietary pattern. These, these microbes, they make up 99.5% of our genetic code. And so it's quite powerful to imagine that less than 1% of your genetic code is the part that's like written at birth. And the other 99.5% is defined by your life and your choices. And when we do a clinical trial and we compare two groups of people, let's pretend for a moment that we're doing a weight loss trial. And this is like a completely hypothetical, but let's pretend for a moment that we're doing a weight loss trial and we are comparing a plant-based diet to a keto diet. And on the, let's just say like, this is not, I'm not trying to pick any fights here, but this is like quite simply, let's pretend that the plant-based diet, people lose five pounds. And on the keto diet, they lose four pounds. And in that study, we say, this is statistically significant, all right? Now there's a problem because we are defining a population average, but you are not average. I am not average. The person at home listening to us right now is not average. We each are our own version, our own unique version. And in that clinical trial, there will be people eating the plant-based diet that we just declared the winner and they actually gain weight even though the goal was weight loss, what do you say to that person? And on the flip side, there would be people who lose 20 pounds on the keto diet. Do you tell them that this is the wrong diet for them for weight loss? Of course not. That would not make sense. So 
we have to acknowledge this this bio individuality and i think it, it needs to inform the choices that we make but that requires us ultimately to have a higher level that goes beyond the clinical trial in terms of defining that bio individuality and that's where a company like zoe comes in and just to describe what we do you know basically every single person who participates in zoe is a part of a larger science project and we are contributing to the science where if I participate in Zoe, I could help people in Canada or in the UK or somewhere else in the world. Right. And on the flip side, that person in the UK who signs up, they're helping me. And we're all kind of chipping into this larger idea of if we all do this together, we can help one another. And so every single person, they submit a gut microbiome test. They wear a continuous glucose monitor. They get their bloods, blood lipids checked. They eat standardized meals so that we can compare my results to your results and know that we, we just ate the same thing. And then they enter their, their dietary information into an app as they go along and they talk about how they feel in that app. And they do that for about two weeks. And by doing this, you know, you take 10,000 people and you put all of this information into a supercomputer. And you let complex machine learning algorithms run and those those algorithms will not identify population norms they will go beyond that to find trends in the data that can be applied to individual users hmm. and then we can circle back and say to those individual users this is how we this is how you can eat for better health now, this, this particular project, because we're continue, we're checking continuous glucose monitor and blood lipids, it's really designed to be about metabolism. Yeah. So what is, you know, the, always, the question has to always be, what is the end point? What are we trying to improve? And we would devise our strategy based upon what the goal is. So if the goal is gut health, for example, well, I would define gut health not by your blood sugar or by your blood lipids. We would have to look at a different way to do that, but you could apply the exact same strategies, the exact same techniques to defining how to eat individually for your gut health. Um, so now, now that we've established that, <laughs> I personally am vegan. If you read my book, Fiber Fueled, I would not say that I'm selling veganism. I, I don't feel that I am. Um, in fact, if you go to the last chapter, the punchline, what I say is, I want to meet you where you are. And I want to help to move you towards a path that heals hmm. and reduces your risk of disease. And ultimately, um, helps you to live a life that is long and, and um, free of disease and filled with lots of joy. And so to me, that path is a plant based path. If we look at the research, the science, there's just no denying that the healthiest diets in the world are a predominantly plant-based diet. Consistently associated with longer life expectancy, with less risk of heart disease, less risk of cancer. And that's not an absolute thing. A Mediterranean diet is a plant-based diet, but it's not a vegan diet. If we go to the five blue zones, so um, Loma Linda, California, Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, Sardinia, uh, Caria, Greece, and finally Okinawa, Japan. These are the five blue zones. These are the five communities of people who have lived the longest, um, the highest likelihood of living to 100 years old, and with low risks of disease. And what we find is that none of the five places are vegan but all five of them are on a predominantly plant-based diet that's individually defined. So like in Okinawa, they're eating edamame. And in um, Costa Rica, they're eating black beans. And in Sardinia, they might be eating pinto beans. But what we see is that 90% of their calories in all these places come from plants. And so the point from my perspective is that people need to make choices because that bioindividuality exists. People need to make choices based upon what you find works best for you. And there are many different paths that can lead to a healthy diet that reduces our burden of disease and allows us to have a long life. But from my perspective, acknowledging science, like 
again, I'm not saying that science is not real. I'm completely about science. And I'm not saying that like bio-individuality rejects science. What I'm saying is that there are these general rules that we have discovered. And these general rules, when you apply to a population of people will lead to us ultimately having the results that we see. But at the same time, you have to make it something that works for you on an individual basis. And looking at the United States of America, the average person in the US right now is 10% plant-based. And if I walk out on the street and um, we have a group of 20 people that represent like the average person in the United States, 19 out of 20 people, 19 out of 20 are below the minimum recommended amount of fiber. They're deficient. And yet when Andrew Reynolds did a comprehensive review, systematic review and meta-analysis of the role of dietary fiber in our life, what he discovered is that when people consume more fiber, they live longer, they're less likely to have a heart attack, they're less likely to die of heart disease, that's our number one killer. They're less likely to be diagnosed with several types of cancer, including esophageal cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer. They're less likely to die of cancer. They're less likely to have a stroke. They're less likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. They are less likely to have chronic kidney disease. <laughs> and so like that's, I just named five of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. And quite simply, when we consume more fiber, we reduce our likelihood of having those diseases. And here we are in 19 out of 20 people are not doing this. So I think what it comes back to is we have to personalize, we have to find what works for us. I'm not worried about whether like the motivations to choose veganism are very different to me than a plant-based diet. Hmm. A plant-based diet is eating for health. And that's how I entered into my dietary choices. I was eating for health. And as I moved down this path of being progressively more plant-based, I noticed that health benefits were occurring with, without any effort. It was just me eating food that I loved, but eating in a way that was nourishing my body and improving my health. And I got myself to a place where I was 90% and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try it and see what happens when I eliminate dairy and eggs. And um, I lost another 15 pounds when I did that. So to me, it was beneficial, but like, this is not about being absolute. This is about being inclusive. This is about like everyone feeling like they can be a part of this. Everyone feeling that they can do this because quite simply, it's starting where you are today and just taking one step in this direction. Yeah, I, I like that you're approaching it from an individual perspective indefinitely. I mean, I think I've seen it with people around me too, where certain people are aggravated by dairy and you had an interview well, link to it as well, where you just talk about, are there differences between, you know, farm, farm raised and unpasteurized milks, raw milk versus um, conventional dairy sources. And I, there's a whole kind of conversation there, but I, I do appreciate that you just say, look, it's on an individual basis. You need to see what works for you. And I also, you mentioned the blue zones. I get very interested because for me, there's something that has to be there when it comes to eating locally. And so I wanted to kind of ask you about in one of the interviews you mentioned, okay, you know, 30 is sort of this marker of how many plants you want to be eating in a week. And it's not that 30 is the holy grail, but you know, 29, 31, like be around that place. And I get curious about how do you link that to eating locally? Because a hundred years ago, you know, we didn't, we didn't have access to, let's say something that's from Okinawa, if we were living in Toronto or the central states, right? So how do we, this concept of ancestral eating, I think is kind of having this big, it's getting popular, let's say. And I'm curious about, I'm really curious about that. How do we do this 30 different plants, five, increasing our fiber, understanding that it's going to really support our microbiome and think logically about, let's say how our great grandparents ate and or should we even be correlating those two? Does it matter? Do we want to eat like our great grandparents? I mean, maybe I'm making assumptions. I am making assumptions. So, you know, how does, should we eat like our great grandparents? Do we want to eat locally or, or do we want this diversity and can we just source food from everywhere and capitalize on increased transportation and, and 
availability of different types of foods? Well, I mean, I think so. First of all, in, in a um, in a perfect world, uh, we would be sourcing our food locally from farmers that we actually know, and those farming practices that they're using are thoughtful and mindful to um, the land, and not just kind of uh, consuming the land and stripping it bare of everything that it has. So, and that's something that we've struggled with. And part of it is population growth. You know, we have 8 billion people right now. And if we were to go back, it was only 2 billion in 1900. And it was only 1 billion in 1800. And so we have um, like radically transformed human population on this planet in the last 200 years. And we're expected to be about 11 billion by uh, 2050. So 250 years, we go from 1 billion to 11 billion people on this planet. And that's created many of the challenges that we have. Now, um, I first would start with this. I would challenge the concept of ancestral eating, not because I think that it's inherently bad or wrong. Uh, I actually think there's a lot to it that I love and think is like, it's great and it's logical and it makes sense. But where is, first of all, the evidence that people live longer with less disease as a result of this? Like, we're not actually talking about people living in modern times. And if you're going to, like, completely reject modern times, then you can turn your hand, your car keys over to me. Right? I want to see it. Like, don't, don't tell me that you're um, living the life of a caveman while you go home to your nice, comfortable bed and your air-conditioned house and you jump in that nice hot shower and then you ride in your car down to the supermarket to pick up your food. That's not ancestral living. I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, with regard to sort of modern day concepts of eating and how we can implement some of these ideas, I mean, I do think that like looking at our grandparents, and by the way, our grandparents didn't eat an ancestral diet. You know, our grandparents were not hunters and gatherers. Um, they had farmers that produced crops for them, right? And so, but our grandparents were not exposed, our great grandparents were not exposed to the ultra processed foods that make up 60% of our diet here in the United States in 2022. And that's like where we need to begin. And I think that everyone pretty much agrees with that, with the exception of some small people that are very loud. And I, I don't really know like how you can honestly say that eating Oreos is just as good as eating a salad. That's impossible for me to believe. But um, mm -hmm. nonetheless, you know, it's, I think, you know, recognizing that 60% of the American diet comes from foods that didn't exist, you know, 100 years ago, I think is an important place for us to start. Now, when it comes to like the animal products, that animal products are about 30% of the American diet. And we look at the way that like we are creating animal agriculture. We're not talking about going out in the woods and hunting for a deer. And if that's something that you choose to do, then so be it. My father was an avid outdoorsman. He loved to hunt. It was literally his favorite thing. And I ate venison when I was a kid growing up. But like, that's radically different than the person who goes down to Whole Foods and picks up the organic beef that was raised on a farm. Like, that's not the same thing. Hmm. And so um, we have to recognize that the amount of animal products that we are consuming is excessive. And if we do not, then we're not really paying attention to population growth and the strain that we're putting on this planet. When we see the Amazon rainforest burning, and that's a rainforest. And the reason that it's burning is not because it's too dry. It's being burned to basically clear land as a part of creating animal agriculture because this is how Brazil is growing their economy and they're meeting and feeding global demands for, for beef. And I like, first of all, let me say, and I, I believe I already said this, but just to be totally clear, like you can consume some beef and be healthy. There is no doubt about that. But in the United States right now, the average person is consuming 220 pounds of meat per year and they weigh 170 pounds. Uh, we're still eating more than our body weight in meat on a yearly basis. Okay. Right. And that, that is like 
complete excess. And what, if I, someone if someone wanted to if, if someone wanted to eat meat, what would be reasonable in your estimation? I think well, so first of all, I, I think that you know what I'm here to talk about is really moderation. And okay. so taking that, like let's pretend that's our starting point, mm -hmm. 220 pounds. You could literally still eat a pound of meat a week and reduce your meat intake by 75%. That's a pretty substantial improvement in terms of individual consumption. That means that what we're doing is now what one person used to eat, now four people are being fed. And you can enjoy the meat, right? If you enjoy it, which I have no doubt, like I enjoyed eating meat when I ate meat. If you enjoy it, then you should do that. But that doesn't mean that we need to make it the centerpiece of our diet. I don't really, it's hard for me to rectify that that's actually enhancing our health. And I, and I haven't seen a study to say that that does, like that people live longer with less disease as a result of that. I think that's a really interesting point, the idea of looking at not just vitamin or nutritional similarities, because I do have some questions about what people talk about when they say if someone's vegan, they're lacking certain things, choline, B12, uh, iron is easily, more easily digested as heme iron versus non-heme, like all these kind of things that you'll get these points. But I think it's interesting that you're also bringing up, it's not just nutrition, it's also looking at disease, incidence of disease and longevity. Those are two really interesting factors that I, yeah, I haven't seen anything on that either to say, okay, if you are eating meat two times per week versus zero versus five versus seven, okay, what's, how is that relating to incidence of disease and or longevity? Right. I think that's very interesting. And I, so what would you say to that piece on nutrition specifically where people say, okay, like I mentioned, choline or the bioavailability of nutrients as well, like beta carotene versus retinol for vitamin A. I, you know, you can go down such a rabbit hole. So I'm really curious about it where people will say, not as bioavailable or uh, we're lacking in some of those and amino acids as well. What gives? Yeah, I find these to be very weak arguments to be totally honest with you. So, and let me, let me just kind of unpack what I mean by that. Um, so yeah, cause I hear it a lot. I like, I'm very curious. Yeah. These are like when, when you talk, because I, I like to look at all views, right. And when you look at the animal based view, that's, I think at the forefront of, Hey, here's why we need some animal meat, maybe not predominantly, but here's why we need some of it. And we thrive with, we thrive with some meat. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, so to be fair, I, I feel like I have already said that my position is that not necessarily everyone needs to be vegan, that instead some people will choose to be vegan and that's a beautiful thing. And those are ethically motivated choices. Mm -hmm. um, but on the flip side that, um, you know, that I do believe that the healthiest diets and the evidence is very clear on this are predominantly plant-based diets. And they come in many different forms. Could be a Mediterranean diet, could be a pescatarian diet. It could be a plant-based diet that's exclusively plant-based, which is essentially a, a vegan diet. Um, and it could be an ancestral diet that includes some meat. Um, I would, you know, I would certainly sort of argue against removing beans and whole grains that to me, it doesn't really make sense. And we could talk about that separately, but to, to talk about um, sort of like deficiencies in diets. Mm -hmm. So first of all, um, so there actually is only one nutrient that is completely missing from a, if we're talking about a vegan diet, there's only one nutrient that's completely missing mm -hmm. and that's B12. Okay. And B12 is incredibly easy to supplement. You can supplement once a week. That's it. Like that's literally all it takes. And um, actually most cows are being supplemented with B12. So- In their food? Uh, yes. Well, or they'll be shot with it. They'll, they'll receive a B12 shot. Huh. So, and that's because the cows are not being fed an adequate diet of their own because they're being fed, like force fed grain. So now that that is the vast majority of animal, of animal product consumption in the United States. So if your source of B12 is that meat, like why, why would you eat meat when it's the cow is being supplemented anyway, right? right? I don't see the supplementation as a big deal. Like I don't, I don't really get why that's a big deal, particularly when I hear the, this argument coming from groups of people that like, tell me you don't take supplements. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like, tell me that you are completely against taking supplements, that the only way to live is completely without supplements. Do you think and that's possible? So like, this is I my mean, point. Well, I don't know. I'm, 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 that's actually a really good question because, so, you know, my great grandmother, I don't think she was taking like a daily, you know, maybe my grandmother, I know your whole, you talk about the Metamucil kind of thing, like maybe my grandmother's age, but like my great grandmother, I don't think she was taking supplements, like from what I know. I mean, she grew up in rural Croatia. But our, our so. ancestral people are people who endorse. So, like um, some of the people that you mentioned who endorse an ancestral diet, are they? not taking supplements or are they no, selling supplements? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this is where my, like completely, right. this is where my, I get very curious because I think, okay, if we're really talking ancestral eating, I don't think there was a supplement or like, or tribes right. now, like commonly reference the Hadza, right? Like, I don't think they're taking, they're, they're buying supplements alongside no. their diet. Right. So like, what is the Right. I they're not. And, and, and there's a difference because they're also, they're also literally hunting for their, their meat. Hmm. right yeah. and they may fail and they're not eating a predominantly meat-based diet so herman Ponser, who's a professor from duke wrote a book about this called burn hmm. and he's like literally studied the hudza you know for decades and so he i think has insights into the lifestyle that the hudza live which is it's an omnivorous diet hmm. they do hunt for some meat they don't have refrigerators Right. So they eat what they kill. They're not successful on every hunt. And they eat a predominantly plant-based diet. And that, that plant-based diet is obviously seasonal. They don't have agriculture. So that's seasonal and it's local and um, it's widely varied. So many different types of plants. Yeah, um, do you think that's, I get curious, like, again, this ancestral, like, do you think that would be Okay, granted, like you said, most people they've got a fridge, they're driving a car, like they're not, you know, they're not doing that. But do you think that is our North Star? Like in terms of, even if you were to say, okay, 90% plant-based, 10%, like should we be aiming toward replicating this kind of, like you said, getting it, getting local produce from a farmer, eating seasonally? Um, I mean, maybe we keep refrigeration. I don't, I don't know, maybe we don't. Like, do you think that should be what we're looking toward as a, as an ideal are they the longest lived i mean are they the longest lived population on the planet the answer is no now granted we can argue that's because they don't have modern healthcare, but that also is making an excuse right because we haven't proven that their diet actually leads to longevity i love so, this point i think it's a really it's something i haven't i love this point like i, yeah. I just want to i don't know i want to highlight it i think it's really yeah. important to look at longevity and incidence of disease like you said earlier Oh, 100%. We, ha we have to look at those things. And, and what we have now is we, we, we do have modern research techniques that allow us to collect information from across the globe and look at different populations and try to figure out what is the right approach to, to all this. And now, you know, one of the important points here is that, like, what, what is an ancestral diet? Yeah, depending right? on where and, and, like, where you're That's living. the point. Yeah, there is no one size fits all ancestral diet. It's so silly to pretend that there is and to argue about it as if there is, because at the end of the day, humans left Africa or they stayed in Africa, but basically they radiated from Africa and wherever they lived, they ate based upon the ecosystem that they found themselves in. And that speaks to the variability in terms of sort of the dietary patterns that exist and our ability to adapt to many different dietary patterns. And I, once again, I don't believe that there is a one size fits all dietary pattern that's going to be best for every single one of us. I do think that it has to be individualized. Um, can that dietary pattern, like I think really the point that you're making to in the original question is like, does it have to be a vegan diet? And as I've already said, like I don't believe that it actually has to be a vegan diet, but it's impossible for me to believe it's impossible for me to believe that the best dietary pattern based upon our biology and the way that we work is less than a predominantly plant-based diet. That's impossible yeah. for me to believe. We have overwhelming evidence from different populations across the globe showing us the benefits of eating a plant-based diet or the role that plants play in promoting longevity and a reduction of disease. And on the flip side, 
we, we are not finding that people live with less disease and longer lifespan as a result of eating meat, with the exception of looking at countries like India, for example, where these are third world countries and the only people that can afford meat are the people that have a lot of money and everyone else is just poor, right? And so it's really more of a socioeconomic indicator than anything. But so this is, this is the issue that I come to is like, can we eat meat and be healthy? Yes, we can. And so I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that the only path forward for health is for you to completely eliminate meat from your diet. What I'm here to say is that there are many different paths that can lead to a healthy diet, but eating 220 pounds of meat per year and having only 10% of your calories come from plants, there's no way that's going to lead to a healthful diet for you. You might still live to 80 or 90. You might still do it, but that's not a healthy diet. And you could have had a lot less issues and a longer life, most likely by eating this other way. Yeah, I I love what you, when you mentioned about also geogra geographically looking at it because there are different plants and different things that we're exposed to depending. I wonder if there's a, based on the work that you're doing, it's what they're eating, but I wonder if it's also geographically, just, you know, somebody living in Canada, for example, with way less sunlight versus somebody living in, um, I don't know, California, who's closer to the equator and it's a warmer climate. Like I, I'd also be very interested, and I don't know if you know, if there's any research out there already about those climate differences. And I mean, just everyone always talks about people in the Northern hemisphere being vitamin D deficient. Like, I think that's something that's been shared a lot in recent years. And I find that to be interesting, like, how do we also optimize diet, not just for our own, let's say microbiome, but how, because it's like an ecosystem, how we link into our local ecosystem, because it's all kind of interacting, I think. Does that, would you say? I, I find that to be interesting. Like we can't completely remove ourselves from our local environment, I guess is what I'm getting at. So how do we- I totally agree. Yeah. yeah, no, I totally agree. But but we have to also acknowledge the complexity because this is not just a dietary thing. This mm -hmm. is a um, environmental thing. And by environment, that includes many different factors. Like, for example, the, the home that you live in, how you clean that home, what you put on your body when you shower, what you put into your mouth when you brush your teeth, uh, the type of water that you drink, um, the whether you live in a city or live in the countryside, um, you know, we could go down the line and there's so many different factors that are environmental factors. And what we do know is that when a person leaves, uh, they have this study where people left, I believe it was Thailand, and they moved to the United States. And they found that within just a few months, they had already radically transformed their gut microbiome. And that speaks to like, this is not just a dietary thing. This is a societal thing. And so, um, you know, this is, this is sort of, uh, the reality and the challenge of what we have living in the modern world. And it's not, it's not going to be perfect. So there are going to be some people who get disease, right? I mean, colon cancer is actually on the rise in people under age 50 right now. Wow. And so we're, we're actually having to make adjustments in the way that we approach colon cancer because more young people are getting colon cancer now. And that is the result of like these different environmental factors in combination with our genetics, but it's not exclusively genetics. There's many yeah. factors. Yeah, I, I love that you're not oversimplifying any part of this discussion. I think that's so important because it's really easy, I think, to simplify and then choose camps and be very absolutist in their thinking. And I just think that it's so beautiful that you're saying so many nuances, so many factors, like let's, <laughs> we need to look at situational variables and the context and what are we aiming toward? I love that you're approaching that. And I, I want to make sure I ask you this one question because I, this is another one that I hear all the time on the animal-based side of things. And I would love your take around um, plant toxicity and looking at plant defense chemicals like lectins, phytoestrins, polyphenols, that sort of thing. I know in another interview, you talked about soaking lentils to make them a lot uh, more easy to digest if someone's having challenges kind of integrating them. But I, I, I would love to hear about this because I think I hear that a lot, right? Okay. Plants, fruits are a bit better, but a lot of plants, kale, onions, garlic, like th this whole realm of thinking. And I know that from your, you have the, oh, what is it? F, the F goals. And you look at the different, I, I think it's really great. I think everyone should check out your book, regardless of what they're eating right now or what they think is 
right? Just for new insights. But um, really curious about that before we go. I, I really wanted to ask you. Well, so first of all, there's no there's no conclusive evidence that plants toxins are actually causing harm to our body. And, you know, like, let's take lectins, for example, lectins are a protein that you will find in many different foods. And um, it's been uh, suggested that lectins cause harm to our gut. Hmm. And yet, so if that's true, like, you know, our gut is connected to our metabolism, connected to our immune system, inflammation. And if that is true, and lectins are like from, let's call it legumes, are actually causing harm to our gut, then the expectation is that we would be at increased risk for disease, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you disrupt the gut and you injure the gut, you are going to increase your likelihood of developing disease. And yet when we look and the evidence I laid out in fiber fueled in chapter four, when we look at the evidence, systematic reviews and meta-analyses, like literally the top of the pyramid in terms of the quality of the evidence, the highest quality evidence that we have, indicates that people live longer with less risk of having a heart attack, with less likelihood of dying of heart disease, our number one killer, with less likelihood of dying from cancer, our number two killer. And you can go down the line and there's a number of other uh, um, chronic health issues, which are common and potentially threatening, that we reduce our likelihood of getting these conditions when we eat lectin-rich foods, right? So how, how is that possible? It just doesn't make any sense. Do you think and on the stress, flip side- Do you think that that's stress from, let's say, lectin? Like if it, if it is anything we eat, we have to digest and there's some energy involved in that. Like, do you think that there's potential that maybe it's not actually bad? If, if something stresses the body to some degree, like I know you said inflammation is bad, but is there some level of like caffeine, for example, or if you look at, I'm just thinking caffeine because some people seem to be okay and others aren't. Like, are there levels of, of things where if you eat something that potentially has a defense chemical, it's okay, or it's somehow benefiting well, the there, body? I, I mean, I do think, I think it's fair to say that there is um, such a thing as too much of anything, right? I mean, you can, we, we need water to sustain life and yet you could drink water to the point that you hurt yourself. We need oxygen to sustain life. And yet if I have a patient in the intensive care unit and I put them on hundred percent oxygen, like our, our air that we're breathing is like 21, 22% oxygen. If I put them on hundred percent oxygen in the ICU, that's actually causing injury to their lungs if you, if you keep it at that level for too long. And so, so there, of course, there's such a thing as anything can be too much at a certain amount. Um, but, you know, let's, let's look at this rationally. Are we uh, sicker today or less sick than we were during our parents' generation? I mean, way higher, no, way higher, I think, incidence of childhood diseases, diabetes among the general population. I would say definitely more health issues, more autoimmune diseases as well, which I find interesting. Yeah. Interesting because we actually are consuming less beans than our parents did. So beans in particular. Huh. Yeah. If we look at, if we look at legume, legume consumption, the average person in the United States is consuming six, six pounds of beans per year. So again, like to put this in the context, we consume, and I'm not blaming autoimmune disease on meat consumption necessarily. Although there are studies connecting meat consumption to ulcerative colitis. Okay. But what I am saying is that like we eat 220 pounds of meat per year. We don't take issue with that or think it needs to be reduced. In fact, in many cases these days, people are thinking that they need to increase that. And then we eat six pounds of beans and we somehow make arguments that people buy that the beans are the problem and it doesn't make sense six pounds of beans it was eight pounds of beans during our parents generation like that's almost nothing and here we are in the healthiest populations like you go to the blue zones and every single one of these five blue zones beans are at the center of their diet they're consuming more beans than they are animal products mm -hmm. and yet we write books that say that like the lectins and beans are killing us. It's a joke. It makes absolutely no sense to me as a medical doctor. 
Do you think it's the, also the preparation? I've heard a lot about preparation of beans. Like there can be certain beans that, like we just need to know how to prepare them as well. I think that's a layer. It's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of an old wives' tale to be completely honest with you. So, okay. well, because what what the story is is this: there are actually studies that could be cited to make it sound like legumes are scary and going to hurt us. Right. And it would be completely ignoring the overwhelming body of evidence where we have, you know, I don't know, at least dozens of studies showing us the health benefits of consuming more legumes. But there was an incident back in the 1980s where someone served a dish to, ironically, at a hospital. And it was like a potluck or something like that. And someone served a dish where they did not adequately cook the beans. And the high lectin content, people got sick. Oh, okay. It's like an right. anecdote, just one. It was a 24-hour thing. Like, no one was hospitalized. It was like they had a, a bug, right? And then they moved on. Mm -hmm. That, to me, does not justify any fear of lectins whatsoever when we're talking about something from the 1980s, and it was like a news story, and no one was actually hurt, right? And it has to do with the fact that if you don't cook your beans, then the lectin content could actually be like troublesome in the sense that it could give you GI symptoms, right? But we cook our beans. If you buy your beans in a can, they're already cooked, right? So it kind of doesn't make sense to me. And then there was another story from the nineties in Japan where they recommended on a television show that people buy this supplement. And the supplement was derived from basically grinding up dried beans and people got sick. Again, the beans were not cooked. Like yeah, so if anyone's ever tried chewing a bean that's not cooked, not good cooked. luck with that. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't taste good. Like I think we would naturally also not be drawn to that. Right. Like it doesn't. So it's, you know, it, it, I think the problem is this, that so people are going to eat the way they want to eat. Right. And the way that I see it is that there are 8 billion people on this planet. And I'm going to, to the best of my ability, have honest discourse, honest conversations about what my experience has taught me, about what my education has taught me, and try to share in a way that people can choose to use the information for their good if they want to. All right. Yeah. I fully recognize and acknowledge that not everyone is going to do that. And that's okay. That's their choice. And, but the, one of the realities that we have to admit exists is that in 2022 you can go to the pocket of the internet that's going to tell you what you want to hear and that doesn't mean that it's solid information and there can be overwhelming evidence to the contrary and it can potentially hurt you and we have to be real about that so coming back to the carnivore diet show me a cardiologist that will support the carnivore diet. I don't think it exists. And there are literally thousands of cardiologists in the United States. Hmm. Interesting. Now, so the impact on the heart you're saying is, is one well, thing to consider. Um, I think that there's a couple things that we could consider, but the most, the most undeniable thing that like any person doing this diet, you can look at your own blood work, all right? And look at your cholesterol. And the LDL cholesterol is the inflammatory form of cholesterol. And we have um, overwhelming evidence that this is an independent risk factor for coronary artery disease. Okay. And it's easy for a person who wants to like, just kind of say whatever they're going to say without acknowledging the overwhelming evidence to say, ah, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. But I just wanna warn the people doing this diet, get your lipids checked and tell me that your LDL cholesterol is not through the roof because I have never seen someone do this diet and not have an LDL cholesterol that is absolutely through the roof. And I just want people to think about this, just ponder this, like whether you, again, this is not me arguing that you need to be vegan. This is me arguing that you are making a choice that is putting you in harm's way. 
which is that with the LDL cholesterol, not only is it associated with increased likelihood of having a heart attack and dying of heart disease. I mean, that's there. But if we take a group of people who have an elevated LDL cholesterol and they have heart disease, they already have it. Mm -hmm. And we treat them with medications that lower their LDL cholesterol. And here's an important point. It's not just one type of medicine that I'm talking about. There are several different medications that we have at this point. The way that they work is to lower your LDL cholesterol. And in each of these cases, in clinical trials, they reduce the likelihood of you having a heart attack and dying of heart disease, right? So if raising your LDL cholesterol increases your risk of having a heart attack and having a heart disease, and we have multiple medications that have been shown in clinical trials to reduce your likelihood of having a heart attack and dying of heart disease by lowering your LDL cholesterol, how are you supposed to feel comfortable being a guinea pig and consuming a diet that is going to radically increase your LDL cholesterol? And there is no cardiologist that will, is going to sign off on this. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen it and I don't believe it would happen because if it did, that would stand completely in the face of science. Very interesting, especially mentioning a specific indicator. And I think so what do you think about people, you know, somebody that maybe isn't as radical or isn't going down that road around blood work? I mean, I know definitely in the in the women's fertility space, it's also becoming a big thing to sort of start checking your your hormones and being very, um, let's say, proactive or preemptive about potential problems. How can we do that in terms of our microbiome? Let's say we're sort of, we feel okay, we've removed, you know, inflammatory seed oils that are highly processed or highly processed foods and packaged foods and we're kind of you know we're sort of we think we're eating okay we kind of feel all right what would you say is a way that we can keep tabs on this is there is there certain testing or certain ways that we can kind of look at this what sh what should we do in that regard because i think most people are trying to make the best decisions they can there's so much conflicting advice they're kind of okay dr b i'll eat more you know fiber i'll eat more vegetables i'll eat more fruits how do I check in on this over the course of, let's say, my 20s, 30s, 40s, before I need the colonoscopy or before I have a really terrible diagnosis? Yeah, um, I think there, there is some complexity to answering this because the issue is that there are at-home <laughs> tests. Well, okay. because this no, is just I feel, I feel like every question I ask, it's like, oh, this is a very big question. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. But but I, I do believe in like, you know, I mean, I could give simple answers, but then that would be ignoring the nuance to honest yeah. answers. So um, the, the, the complexity is that there are a lot of at-home tests, right? There are people who will tell you that they can make custom probiotics. There are people who will tell you that they can take your microbiome and tell you what to eat. There are people who will tell you that they can tell you what your food intolerances are. Yet everything that I just mentioned, I have not seen a study to prove that the claims are real. So if you can't prove it, then to me, that's marketing. That's not science. Now on the flip side, like coming back to this company, Zoe, I want to make sure that I keep this separate, um, not because I'm trying to protect the company, but because we have to, um, again, like acknowledge the nuance that exists where if a company is willing to do the research to validate the work, then that to me is something that we should celebrate. And with Zoe, we started the company in 2017. Now, I didn't know that Zoe even existed in, in 2017. I discovered Zoe in 2020. June of 2020 is when I found out about them. And that's because they were presenting their research at the American Society of Nutrition, and they had just published in Nature Medicine, which is the top journal on the planet. And even though I was excited about what they were doing, this was June of 2020, actually the, the, the product was not commercially available. They did not make their product commercially available because they were busy doing clinical trials for three years. And then once they had actually validated the product, they came forward with it and they made it available in late 2020. So like the fall of 2020 is the first time people in the United States could actually do this. Now, I think this is an important point because most companies like, why would you do that? 
when you could just market it and convince people that it's true. And the problem is people are being taken advantage of. And if you go to the website, they will claim that they have science on their side. But if you ask them, like if you were to actually get a person on the phone or on an email and say, what evidence do you have with your product specifically? It'd be crickets. You wouldn't hear anything because they don't have any. So I just, you know, I feel for people who um, get bought into a narrative and instead like the science is not there. Science has to be there. Everything at the end of the day is observation of some variety. Even us like describing what the Hudza eat, that is still scientific in nature. That's an observation of a dietary pattern among a group of people and us making inferences about how that could relate to our personal health. So at the end of the day, science is everything. Science is the way that we make, basically have a compass to guide us. And we have to be smart enough as individual consumers to not buy into marketing hype and instead to dig deep enough to understand whether or not something is real or not. Yeah, I love that being evidence-based no matter the, the product or the test, right? Totally. Sorry about that. That's our timing and we are, we are over. So I could probably keep you all day. I love this. Um, <laughs> but I, I really appreciate that you're saying to be evidence-based and to be focused on companies and products that have looked into what the effects are before they go and sell it to the masses. I think that's so important. And how do we, so should we talk to a regular doctor then? Like how do we, me, right? So I go and I say, okay, I want to I want to work on my microbiome. I read fiber fueled. I'm really excited. Can I work with you? Do I go where, where do I go to improve my microbiome specifically? And then also let's say, should I look at insulin and those things? Like you said before, right? People are kind of, it depends what your North star is. So what should my North star be is improving my microbiome enough to put me into optimal health. And if so, where should I go to, to do that, to check how I'm doing and to improve? I think that I think that improving your gut micro. So first of all, we don't have a way to measure your gut microbiome. Just to be totally clear, like we don't have a way to measure your gut microbiome by itself, okay. and then say, oh, well, I didn't this even is know that. Good. I didn't even know yeah. that. <laughs> well, no, we we can we can do it. We can do the test. We just haven't validated it. Even with Zoe, people are not just checking their microbiome. They're also again wearing the glucose monitor, doing the lipid test entering stuff into the app, right? So there's a lot more information that we're collecting beyond just the, the microbiome specimen. So I do believe that like at the end of the day, we can get um, hyper-focused and almost neurotic about like looking under the hood and being ultra specific about this or about that. And at the end of the day, I don't know if that actually serves a tremendous purpose in terms of helping us. You know, if we feel well, if our energy levels are high, if we're enjoying the food, if we're happy, then we're in a good spot. And I personally think that we need to roll. We need to continue to roll. Um, now, I, I just want to acknowledge real quick, because it almost sounds like I feel like sometimes the way that I talk about this makes it sound like for the people at home, like, how can you fall for these traps? How can you do this? Right. And I just want to acknowledge, like, I, it's hard. <laughs> It's hard. I, sometimes I get confused myself. And so we're all just doing our best. So I think building into that grace and like willingness to allow imperfection for yourself is an important part of us just like living full lives and having that joy and having that happiness. So I think it's very important for people to not like get so focused that that focus becomes an unhealthy thing where you fear food or you feel like uh, you're letting yourself down with the weight, with the choices that you're making. I think there's, there's gotta be a, a better balance where we're just sort of in the sweet spot, enjoying our life, eating good food. It's food that promotes longevity. That's what we're looking for. Oh, I love that. I think that's really a place to, to round off with, with joy and intention and, and feeling good. And I, I love that you're willing to kind of go after some controversial or challenging questions today. And I really appreciate you making the time to be here. It means so much to me and, and everyone listening, I'm sure. 
That's my pleasure. And um, thanks for having me. And you know, any, anyone who's interested in um, my work and learning more about this, you can come to my website, theplantfedgut.com. I have a ton of free resources. I have an email list that people really seem to dig and enjoy. Um, where I will like, if there's a cutting edge or breaking news study, I will I will send out an email to my list about it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at the Gut Health MD, and then of course there are my books. My brand new book is called The Fiber Fields Cookbook, and um, it's it's really a book for people to enhance and improve their gut health. Whether you're someone who has food intolerances or you feel good, you feel healthy, and you just want to do even better, that's what the book is about. And I think it's sort of a again. It's not one size fits all. It's meant to be a choose your own adventure for gut health. I love that. Choose your own adventure. And I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. So anybody, if you want to take a look, the, all the links to those sites and the books will be there. Perfect. I love it. Thanks so much. Thanks everyone.